created live on Fireside. news and the stories of campus life. I'm Dr. Laura DeVoe, a 30-year higher education veteran who has dedicated her life to college students. Over those years, I celebrated underdogs who won championships. I ate more pizza than a human being should ingest in a lifetime. And I shook the hands of graduates as they grabbed hold of that hard-earned diploma on the first day of the rest of their lives. And that's why I'm here. You see, there are lived experiences, there are stories, there are moments that students have on campus that prepare them for life. I want to connect with these people and those who helped them along the way and hear how campus life brought their real life purpose. There are so many stories on campus, and that's why I hope you'll stay to listen, contribute, and become part of the community. So join me for Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, only here on Fireside Chat. All right. Well, welcome everybody to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And I want to welcome back to, to the show uh, my one of my favorite people in the whole world, Beth Grampetro. Hello, Beth. How are you? Hello. That's... That's a lovely intro. Thank you. Well, <laughs> the feeling is mutual. We thank you very much. And uh, so, uh, for those of you who are new to Office Hours with Doctor DeVoe, um, I am Doctor Laura DeVoe, and this is an opportunity for us to spend an hour each week talking about higher education, uh, specifically in the United States, uh, and some trends, what's going on. Um, as a person who spent thirty years of their life working with college students, um, I have a lot of thoughts on all of this. I know the value. You, uh, that campus life and the uh, experience students have on campus brings to their lives and uh, both during their four to five to six, depending on how long it takes, years of undergraduate life, um, all the way through and beyond. And um, so Beth is somebody uh, that I wanted to bring to the, to the um, conversation this week uh, because I've worked with Beth. Uh, how many years did we work together? Like now you're going to ask oh, me to do math, which, or I'm asking eight, you to do Probably like eight or nine total. Yeah, eight or eight. nine total um, at two different places. And um, we, Beth was, uh, it is, not was, um, but uh, <laughs> she is a uh, health uh, administrator. Um, and she has a background in public health. She has her master's in public health. And she uh, brings a really great viewpoint to how she interacts with student health uh, student health on campus and what student health is all about and what we could be doing to better serve our students from a health perspective. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring her in uh, was uh, the data that is showing right now with vaccination rates in the United States that uh, traditional age college students, and we're going to use the traditional age uh, group being your 18 to 23 year old students, um, are part of this band of humanity getting away from politics for a second, because I know we do a lot of conversation in the media about uh, that people from red states uh, are not getting vaccinated. We're going to stay away from that for a second, although it may compound in this conversation. Uh, but it is showing that that is the uh, least vaccinated age group in the United States right now. Um, and Beth knows more about talking to young people about behavior modification, behavior uh, changes uh, around things like sex, around drugs, around liquor. Uh, some of my favorite conversations with parents were always at orientations where Beth was talking about sex and watching the parents' faces just dropping uh, because they literally were like, I don't understand this. I think my one of my favorite would. Did you say cock block in a in a orientation? Am I am I making yeah. that up or is that no, someone that, else? That really did happen, and it happened because we were actually talking about um, bystander training. It was a bystander yes. training, uh, and it was about um, it was a conversation with students about why it's important to 
you know, interrupt if you see a friend specifically, I was talking about, you know, if you see a friend, you know, trying to take home or, you know, physically get with a person who is obviously, you know, that they don't know where they are, you should intervene. You're, you know, and I can, and I basically said to them, like, I know what you're thinking. You don't want to be a cock block. And Mm-hmm. The funniest thing about that was that there was like a reception for the parents afterward and the provost at the institution. I, I overhear him saying to the president, I learned a new word today. <laughs> 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 but I was mostly like, you've really never heard that word before. Okay. Um, maybe he had, who knows? But yes. So yeah, that's, it is fun. I have always enjoyed kind of, it's fun to be the person talking about those topics. Um, it's a, it's a little bit problematic and silly that we think of them as, as controversial topics, but that's right, kind of right. that's kind of what we're going to talk about today a right. little bit. <laughs> exactly. And then um, we're also going to talk um, about. I'm glad you said. It, I'm I'm glad I remembered some of this past story. But um, you were talking about bystander training, and that goes to our second topic that we're going to talk about today, which is uh, sexual violence on college campuses, sexual assaults, and uh, Title IX, which uh, has been uh, how colleges and universities have have kind of dealt with this, either through a process uh, as well as with uh, climate, campus climate uh, modifications. And and, uh, we want to talk a little bit about that because we're at a cusp right now where there's going to be some change, and you and I are going to spend some time talking about what we hope comes out of this, okay? So Mm -hmm. today we're talking about COVID and we're talking about uh, Title IX, but we're going to start with the COVID vaccine. And I think when I, when I look at, at what we're dealing with right now, it really does, and, and some of the conversations, and I think part of the reason I wanted to have uh, Beth on today is I hear a lot of these kind of emphatic statements from folks who are saying, why can't they just take it? Why won't they just change? Why won't they? And it's the same kind of stuff that I would hear from, say, a faculty member who say, why can't the students just stop drinking alcohol? And I'm like, well... <laughs> That's not how it works, okay? And this behavior and how behavior compounds when you are in a residential setting, when you are on a campus, when you are around people who are your peers, um, some of the decision-making that you might have uh, as it results to, uh, as it results with, you know, going into a party atmosphere or uh, experimentation, those things all, those are all things that actually change a lot, right, Beth? When people are coming onto campus, they come in with what are their norms from home? What are the expectations from home, from their home home base, from their parents, from their friends? And now they're thrown into something else. And, and my first question for you is, are, are colleges and universities going to be feeling this kind of push to try to get students to take the vaccine? Uh, what are you seeing? You are very well connected uh, in the health education sphere. What are you currently seeing in terms of chatter? And what are some of the concerns that you have from some of the expectations that people are throwing at you? I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the list of colleges and universities that are uh, mandating COVID vaccine for students and in some cases for employees is growing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um. I think this is a good idea. Um, it's perhaps a bit of a separate conversation, but mm-hmm. you know, most states in the U.S. do mandate um, vaccines for other communicable illnesses for students that go to college, and also in K through 12. Um, and that's a pretty uh, that's common. That's been going on for, I mean, probably decades at this point, if yes. not longer. Um, and it is a pretty reasonable thing to do in that um, it's, it's about public health. It's about the safety of a community of people. Um, Cause I think one of the, and this is a little bit of a digression, but I think it's important. One mm-hmm. of the frustrating things for me um, in seeing the kind of debate that has arisen over this, whether, whether vaccines should be required in certain places, whether a person should have to prove their vaccination status to participate in certain things that's not a new thing. We do that all the time. We do that, especially with children um, for summer camp, for school all the time um, and for college. And um, there's been a lot of co-opting of uh, 
the language typically used around reproductive rights now to say, no, my body, my choice, I shouldn't have to get a vaccine. <laughs> and right. it's a false equivalency because there is not, that's not the same thing. Um, and there's actually precedent, there's legal precedent about like, you don't actually have the right necessarily to refuse vaccination. Um, many states, including Massachusetts, where you and I are, do allow for exemptions in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, some states allow for religious exemption, some for philosophical exemption, and then most obviously for medical exemption, if there's a condition that a person has that precludes them from safely receiving a vaccine. But um, legally, like municipalities, states have overridden those sorts of things in times of outbreaks. Mm -hmm. um, there have been compulsory vaccinations of people in communities when there have been outbreaks of things like measles. Um, and this goes all the way back to there's a Supreme Court case that was decided also in Massachusetts. This might actually be late 19th century, um, where basically the, the court held like, no, you cannot. There is no constitutional right to not be vaccinated. That's right. not in there. <laughs> right, right, um, right. So different thing when we're talking about the safety of people around you versus your own health and safety. Right. right. Um, I think. You know, we already saw this week a judge upheld the right of Indiana University to yep. require vaccination for students. Not the University of Indiana, as people no. were referring to it. IU, everyone. <laughs> um, but I think people were, um, you know, on the side of the colleges, people were hesitant at first because these vaccines are approved for emergency use and have not received, like, basic full, I hate to say full FDA approval, because mm -hmm. that gives this impression that they're like not as safe under emergency use as they will be when the FDA says two or three months from now, yeah, we're okay, we're going to get the go ahead. Um, I think, though, that we're in an extraordinary situation. And this is a circumstance where we can't prevent the transmission of COVID with condoms. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's other, there's considerations here that are very different from um, some of the other things that we might, and, and we did, I mean, we had a period of time and, and hopefully we're, you know, some places are still continuing to use some of those methods that are um, mitigation, like distancing, like masks, all those mm -hmm. things. But mm -hmm our way out of this is vaccination. Right. And that is why it is disheartening to see that there are communities in our country where, by the way, the vaccine is extremely accessible. Yes. Um, for the most part, I do want to say like, there are reasons why folks across our country are not finding it as accessible as others. Um, but if we're comparing, if I can generalize for a moment, if we're comparing the U S to a lot of other countries, yeah, we, we have access um, yes. that other countries don't, which is a whole other fireside chat, probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it is frustrating. Um, and I understand where people are coming from when they're saying, like, why don't you just get it? Why don't you just do it? It's easy. Just do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think the mandates coming from a lot of colleges make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I know that they're not everyone's favorite thing. Um, I don't think though that you can just mandate in most places. Um, I have a good friend and colleague who works at a kind of smallish college um, here in Massachusetts who has done a great job of, you know, the, the college is mandating it, but their, her department, which is health promotion and education has still done a lot of work to incentivize yeah. getting vaccine. They've had, they've basically been having a competition um, between the class years to say the first class year to reach a certain percentage of everyone in the class vaccinated gets um, some kind of social experience on campus in the fall. Right. Um, and if everyone reaches a certain percentage, then they can have a fall concert, you know? So really trying to say, yes, you, we're going to make you do this <laughs> because yeah, it's a right, safety right. thing, but also we're going to sweeten the pot and we're going to say, Hey, here are some added benefits on top of the benefits you get just from getting the vaccine. Here's some perks. Um, a lot of attention has been given in the news to the perks being offered at the state level. Like Massachusetts has a, has a lottery. Ohio mm. gave money out to people. Um, I would have just given a little bit of money to everybody. Yeah, I would. I would literally would have said, okay, everybody, if you get a shot, you get a, a $500 or $250 yeah. or whatever. Or whatever even less be. than that would yeah. have probably done it for people. Like, yeah. And I think, 
And there's a version of this that's done at a lot of drugstores during flu season. You'll see it if you go to like a CVS, you get a shopping pass. If you get your mm -hmm. flu shot at CVS, they'll give you 20% off your purchase. And it's not that it's a huge amount of money or that like it's going to be a life-changing discount. Right. But it it sweetens the deal. And it's it a does. different it's a it's a thing that we've seen when incentivizing that like it's actually more attractive to people if they know that they're going to get an incentive, any incentive, than if they get a chance at an incentive. Correct. Um, that said, I sure as hell signed up for the Massachusetts Vax yeah. Millions on <laughs> so July 1st, yes. the moment that I was eligible, because I have things I can do with a million dollars, and yes. I will if I win and it. I, and which... I signed my kid up for the free tuition, because that Damn would right. be a cool thing, too. <laughs> You know, and, and yes. you know, some of the things that you were just saying and this idea about like incentivization and the reason I brought up the amount of money I did is that some of the people who are not going is because they can't afford to take a day off from work and $250 yes. might be about what they make in a day. And so that, you know, this idea of like, let's really do some deep dive into data and say, who's not coming in? And is there something about incentivization uh, that we could then do to get people to, to come in and get that shot? Um, right. So, but and I wanna, this is actually one, one quick thing I want to yeah. touch on. And for, that's sort of like, this is where some of the vaccination rollout is still a bit of a failure of, um, various levels of government and also just like the, the private sector business wise is mm -hmm. like, there needs to be time off. There needs yes. to be, there needs to be like a universal acknowledgement that you may need a day off after you get your shot and we're going to pay you for that. Right. Um, right. And I think the other thing that we're seeing in some States that's going to be an issue is there are States trying to say, we are going to make it illegal here in our state for anyone to mandate the vaccine. Right. Right. which is a whole uh, whole level of crazy. That, it's straight you know, up just, I'm so, I, I don't Yeah. I, it's hard to understand. Um, well, to take yeah. it to that. And this is one of the things about my, I'm looking at right now from the New York times um, in the last year. And this is why it's important for colleges and universities. When we're looking at places where there has been outbreaks and outbreak mm -hmm. clusters, cases connected to higher education far go go into far higher numbers than even prisons mm -hmm. nursing homes and other clusters okay food mm -hmm. processing plants so university of florida you know go go gators okay 9914 cases indiana university bloomington 8607 cases ohio state 8008 cases university of wisconsin miami i'm uh, sorry madison 7,708. Those are the top four. Mm -hmm. And when you say, you know, why is vaccination important on a, in a college campus? Well, there you go. Yes. Okay. And the, as we know, the, the virus doesn't stay just within the confines of the university of Florida. It goes out throughout the rest of the city of Gainesville mm -hmm. and beyond. And so you know, as you're thinking about what you've learned over your time working with students about behavior and about what they need to do about about augmenting behaviors, something we were talking about before we came into the from the green room into here was. And so for those of you who are new to, to Fireside, one of the things that's wonderful about Fireside is that we as creators can bring our guests into what's called the green room. We're able to talk just like you would in a physical location and kind of get some read on where the show is going to go and that sort of thing. And so during their time in the green room, uh, Beth was saying about how, you know, when you are a college and a college health administration office and you are inheriting a population of students, um, you are inheriting them with biases, with how they've been taught and educated around issues, around what are their parents' expectations of them, also about misinformation and disinformation. Um, so give us some examples of where you've had to combat that in the past and what you're thinking about how this is going to frame how you work with uh, the COVID vaccine moving forward. That's a great question. So I think one of the places where it comes up a lot and this changes, it has changed over the years. Um, but I can remember certainly in like the late aughts, 
the school I was at at that time, I had a lot of conversations with students about sexual health. And that was a time when it really felt, at least anecdotally, like they were coming in with a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. or just a lot of a lack of information. Um, yeah, like I had more than one student come to me afraid that they were pregnant and then they would describe you know, I'd be like, why, why do you think that? And they would describe the behavior that they thought made them pregnant and it couldn't like, there just was no way. And it's tempting to laugh. Right. And just be like, Oh, haha. So it's so silly. They don't know, but like, that's not a problem. That's a problem. And it's not a good, like, it's not a good way to send your kid off to college, not having any understanding of how that works. Um, but it is, it is about like, what was their upbringing? What was the sort of comfort level of their family to talk about these topics with them? Were those topics addressed in school or in some other educational setting? Um, were they given the autonomy and empowered to ask these questions or seek out that information or like get the related medical care that they might need? You know, like all these things, depending on like what your what communities you're growing up in. And I mean that in terms of like geographically, politically, faith communities, cultural, like there's all these things, all these kind of intersecting, yeah, all these intersecting identities that impact how we learn about and explore our own sexuality. And yeah, like anything from you get no information to you get incomplete or incorrect information or even, you know, those of us that, at least in my generation of like being being in high school in the 90s, I wouldn't say I got great sex ed, but I understood like how not to get diseases and not get pregnant, mm-hmm. which is like the bar is on the floor, but at least I had that, um, right. you know, and, and I think now luckily we're seeing a lot of students that are demanding more than that. Um, right. And I think the way this kind of, uh, you can graft this onto the whole vaccine thing Um people are getting a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of questions, even, even at my current workplace where it's Massachusetts, we have very high vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. We generally have a population that has been like pretty okay with COVID restriction, you know, like this is a state where people have been pretty on board with preventing things and trying to trying to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. And I was still getting questions from students and employees that I was a little surprised they were asking. Um, But it just goes to show how far the reach is of a lot of the misinformation about, um, you know, the, what the vaccines do and do not do Mm -hmm. um, how they were tested or not tested the kinds of like impact that, you know, and I'm talking from faculty who are right. literal scientists. And I was right. just like, whoa. So, and I don't say that again to mock. It's just, it's a very, it's telling that right. this is how, this is how much misinformation is out there and how far it's penetrating. Right. Um, I think that one of the ways that, um, the, that colleges and universities are kind of walking a, a tightrope here is, you know, last fall, those schools that decided to have any students on campus in person. And it was a lot. And there are reasons that Mm -hmm. schools needed to do that or decided to do that. Um, There was a lot of talk in the media about the fact that, you know, colleges were asking for something impossible. They were saying, you young adults, emerging adult college students come back to this campus, but don't do any of the stuff you normally do. Don't socialize. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some cases using the conduct system to enforce these things. And it's tricky because on the one hand, yes, like you can't have someone on your campus during a pandemic, have them, you know, tell them kind of what the guidelines are and have them just not follow them because it's endangering other people. However, the guidelines can't be impossible to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there is a medium and it's, and I don't, I'm not saying this to lay blame on really anyone in the situation because right. the understanding of what we could and couldn't do really grew and changed and mm-hmm. evolved through the academic year. Yep. And I think the thing that we're still doing poorly. And when I say we, I mean like our country Lovely. as a whole, Right. there's no nuance to so much of the guidance that's out right. there. Right. There's like, there's no off ramp. 
like the, I'm going to like stick my toe in a place I shouldn't, but it's such a good example. <laughs> the Get American, the American Academy of Pediatrics just said the other day, yes, <laughs> everyone in K through 12, regardless of vaccination status should be wearing masks in school in the fall. Okay. I don't think that's necessarily a bad guideline. Wearing mm-hmm. masks for 99.9% of us is not that hard. Mm-hmm. It does present issues for some folks. Like it's my mom is super hard of hearing and reads lips and it sucks for her when everyone around has a mask on. Right. Um, and that's not, that's not nothing that impacts a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yep. But masks are generally speaking, not harming anyone, easy to use and they work. Right. So like, yes to all that. However, they didn't say that can end when the vaccination rate in the school right. reaches X or right. the community transmission rate in the local community is this. There, there's no, like, there's a lot of entities out there that are not considering nuance and not saying, like, and this is the off-ramp into, like, a different phase of this. These are mm-hmm. kind of the the guide, uh, the guardrails that we're going to put up and, and sort of where the off-ramp is into, like, not having to do that anymore. Right. Um and that gets very challenging for people. Um, I also think that that was where it got tricky for colleges last year was there was a lot of reticence, understandably at first, to say like, you can socialize and here's how. Right. And that's and that's where like the idea of harm reduction comes in. And there was a lot of really good writing um, during the pandemic from several different people, primarily Julia Marcus, who I believe is from Harvard Medical School, mm-hmm. um, talk because she had a lot of experience working on HIV and AIDS. And she was just like, this is how we, you know, borked the response to HIV and AIDS in the beginning was shut down all the bathhouses. Nobody have sex with anybody. Right. That's not real. That's not a real thing that people can do. And so there was a lot of that this past year of like, don't see anyone, don't do anything, don't go anywhere. Right. And it was like, and and what, what do I do next? Because one of the things you brought up about harm reduction and about and that sort of thing is that you can't do it doesn't work with college students, right? Or um, anybody, frankly, or anybody. Right? But, but, as, <laughs> but from, yes. let's let's talk about like the community that you and I have spent so much time with. Yes, is that when you say to somebody the answer is no, okay, um, that it just doesn't work. And I always used to say to parents and to students, if you are going to, you know, there's, there's a segment of the population, I'm not sure how big it is anymore. And especially in the last couple of years, I'm sure that's changed is where people would um, deposit at multiple institutions and then send their kid to, to orientation and do that last feel and say, okay, where am I going to go to school? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I would say to the parents at either admitted student days or at these orientations and say, look, if you're hearing from other schools that they have nobody on their campus drinks and nobody on their campus does drugs and nobody on their campus has sex, they're full of it. And Mm -hmm. that is not how it works. And if they say, well, the reason for this is we have very strong rules and we tell people they can't do it. Well, that's not how it works. And that idea of, of being punitive and being overly punitive and you and I have are old enough that we've gone through these changes in our uh, experiences where we hear from students uh, that they don't want to narc out their friends who are drunk, who may need help um, because they themselves don't want to get in trouble. And there was a huge kind of, this was probably late nineties, early two thousands where people and campuses were trying to call it. Um, well, what did we call it? Like uh, you, you had a uh, good, good, uh, Ah, what's the word? Oh, Good uh, Samaritan. Yeah, Good uh, Samaritan policies. policies. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so Good Samaritan policies saying, look, if you bring Laura in because she's blackout drunk, you're not you and you yourself have been drinking underage. You won't be in trouble. We've got to take care of Laura first. That was a big conversation piece on the campuses. And some of what the campuses have been doing of late of these very punitive measures to deal with the COVID uh uh, tracing and uh, some of the trying to get people not to gather in large places and all that kind of said, oh, wow, we really took a big step back to these punitive measures um, when we may have been able to learn from some of the better techniques we had been using in the last, you know, you know, probably the last 10, 15 years. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think that it's just hard because this was such a, a unique situation where it was literally life or death. And yep. it was a situation where it, it, yeah, like correctly, a lot of campuses needed the hammer in these situations. And it's not great. Like if you're the student being impacted by that or your, your son or daughter is the student being impacted by that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I have empathy for everyone in the situation yes. because and, and no matter is, what you do, you're going to get slapped. Yeah. Everyone yeah. thinks you're being too harsh or you're not being harsh enough right. um, for the students that half the world is they've made a mistake. They're young. What do we expect? You put them on campus. What were they supposed to do versus mm-hmm. they're old enough to know, yeah. you know, they were told what the rules were. So it's, it's very tricky. And I, I think that we didn't have the luxury of time and knowing exactly what we were up against the whole time. Yep. And I think that's and where. Changed. And campus yeah. resources around it were also, we don't pivot fast in higher ed. It's like, okay, well, apparently now we're changing this. And some people had no health background who were running these uh, programs. Mm-hmm. Um, some universities and colleges were able to benefit from either having their own medical school or being in a place where they could absolutely bring in some expertise to be able to run their contact tracing programs and their mitigation programs and all that kind of stuff. But then other places, and I know several people who fall into this category, their position was furloughed mm-hmm. and they were told, Hey, we need some help running our COVID, uh, outreach. Can you do this for us? Yeah. These were not people who worked in health. These were not people who worked in the medical school. Um, these were people who worked in places like, you know, student engagement. Okay. Like these are not people who did uh, that kind of work. Um, and, and so your point, I think, is really a good one, is that institutions were all kind of going with the guidance, doing their best, knowing that things were changing all around them. Um, and having to kind of be as flexible and nimble as possible, but we never were able to kind of get ahead of it. And we still aren't. And that's not just colleges and universities. That's the whole, that's the whole world right now. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask one more question on this, but I also want to note uh, for folks in the audience, uh, this is the beauty of Fireside Chat. If you have a question, please uh, request to come on up on stage and ask Beth uh, or me any questions you might have. Um, we are very happy to have you up here to ask a question. That's one of my favorite parts about the app um, and about this platform. Uh, and uh, after we get into this uh, last kind of question on the COVID vaccine and COVID vaccinations on college campuses, we're going to take that pivot uh, towards sexual violence and uh, what we're going to be potentially seeing in the future. But also, really, this is more of a Beth and Laura have a wish list kind of thing, okay? <laughs> uh, because we're, I, I don't, I'm not going to speak for Beth here, but I'm kind of, I'm done with this. We need to kind of really move in a direction that's that's more sustainable, but but that's coming up after the last question on COVID. Um, with that, you know, I think that with the, the COVID vaccine and, you know, you know, um, and you said it earlier that colleges and universities uh, in many states uh, have to keep track of uh, vaccination requirements for students um, and vaccinations of students. And for the people in the audience who might be wondering, you know, what, why is that? Um, why do campuses keep, keep track of that? Um, what is the benefit for the campus? Uh, and is this a HIPAA violation? Uh, can, you, can you explain that? And for, thank you. Um, and for those who, who don't, I'm, like, I'm glad Stephanie's here because like she's our, she's our HIPAA expert. Okay? Um, and I'm glad she laughed at that. But, but tell me more about, you know, explain to people why we have this and, and is, it, is it a HIPAA thing? Okay. So the reason that we have immunization requirements in any, in college or in K through 12 or at camps or any of those places is twofold. It's that obviously having a large proportion of people that are going to be together, whether it's in a congregate living situation like a residence hall um, or just in the same classrooms all the time or at a summer camp together or whatever it is, 
the more people that are vaccinated against communicable diseases, the less likely it is that if someone catches one, that it's going to go anywhere in that community. So it's everyone, it's for everyone's safety first and foremost. The reason that these, that these institutions and entities keep track of this is partially because I can't just take your word for it, that you had the mumps when you were a kid. And secondly, if something were to come up, like let's say you're working on a college campus and this actually happened when I was working on Res Life way back, there was a mumps outbreak on my campus and um, the local department of health needs to know who's vaccinated and who's not. Correct. Basically like they need to be able to come in and say, all right, how many, what's the proportion of people on your campus that are vaccinated? And can you get us a list of people who aren't because then they're going to come in and vaccinate people who aren't. And that's actually happened. I think most recently UMass Amherst had that happen with meningitis that there was an outbreak on their campus. And, and that was actually, I think a type, it was a type of meningitis that is not a tip, not currently a required vaccine in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit of a different situation. Um, But they were able to come in and say, okay, we're going to vaccinate everyone. We're going to offer this now to try to slow this down and stop it. Right. Um, So that is the reason. Right. So HIPAA, oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God, you guys. Um, No, HIPAA is, yes, this is, it's, it's like funny and also just makes us all want to tear our hair out. Like the, 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 the eye roll that I know Beth is having right now, and we don't have a video uh, kind of construct (laughs) here, but I know Beth well enough that I think, I know her eyeballs are literally in the back of her head. It's fine. Um, So HIPAA is a law that everyone thinks they understand and so many people do not. There's even a Twitter bot, or I don't even know if it's a bot, but it's a Twitter account that's called Bad HIPAA Takes that I I recommend you follow because they just basically dunk on people on Twitter who are like, this is a HIPAA violation. It's not. No, it's not. Um, the acronym, which also people put two Ps in the acronym, it's not. It's H-I-P-A-A, which is Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was passed in 1996 um, and signed into law by Bill Clinton. So a little HIPAA history. Everybody thinks that it's like, you can't ask me anything about my health status ever. That's not what it means. Right. Um, what it means basically, is, and you've probably noticed this because you've gone to um, the doctor or any medical provider and you've probably had to sign something saying that the practice or the provider has shared their HIPAA privacy practices with you and that you understand and acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that they are not allowed without your um, permission to share your health information with others, The, the practice, the provider, the hospital, like the person providing the care and maintaining the record cannot just tell like if Laura called up my doctor's office and was like, did Beth get vaccinated? They can't tell her, Mm -hmm. although vaccines are different a little bit, which I'll get to in a moment, um, can be different, but like she couldn't call up and be like, does Beth take any prescription medication? No, they can't tell her that she can ask me and I can say, I'm sorry, I don't want to share that with you. Um, but like, it's not a violation of HIPAA to ask (laughs) for the information. It would be a violation for a provider, Um, or a medical practice to share the information. It also has to do with like um, that you can get copies of your health information on request and that you're like you're um, and it has to do with like insurance coverage uh, following you places. It's, it's more complex than just the privacy part, but everyone gets very hung up on the privacy part part. and gets very sure. And like 90% of the time they're wrong. They're like, this is definitely a HIPAA violation. It's like, no, it's really not. Um, The other thing is there are not like HIPAA police. It's kind of like in higher ed, we say there are no FERPA police. Um, Someone has to complain and it has to be the person whose HIPAA rights were violated. Like if my medical information is shared without my knowledge or against or without my consent or in a wrong way, I have to be the person who says, Hey, I think this was a violation against me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that comes up sometimes. Um, right. And immunization. For those audience who don't know what FERP right. is, FERP is the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. And that was uh, from, I think, 1974. And that is about uh, student uh, records. Um, and mm-hmm. so, as Beth said, there's no FERPA police, there's no HIPAA police. Um, you, these, are, these are things you need to be working within because it's, it's 
the law. Um, but you know, people don't really understand it. Um, well, there's also, there's also practice just like in the medical, in, in medicine, in dental practice, in all of these professions, there are professional standards also that say you don't just tell other people, you know, you don't even tell like, Oh, I, I can't even say if I were a doctor, like, Oh, I met your neighbor today. Cause they came in to see me. Like, that's not something your neighbor could tell you, Hey, Beth is my new doctor. Like again, like you can disclose anything you want. It's just the provider cannot. And when I, when I say vaccines are a little bit different, your vaccination information, and this may be different um, depending on what state you're in. I'm not totally sure of this, but like, I know in Massachusetts, there is a statewide vaccination database and my, the fact that I got two doses of COVID vaccine is in there without me doing anything because providers report these things to state databases because again, vaccination is a matter of public health concern, but it is not in a state database that I like had an eye exam last summer. That's not, that's not something anyone needs to know. So I did have an eye exam last summer. That's when I got reading glasses. Um, (laughs) Yay. Aging. So, but people, people are freaking out about like my employer can't ask me, well, they can, Um, you can decide not to tell them, but they can also set parameters around what happens if you don't tell them much like a school system or college or university, or even a venue Mm -hmm. for concerts or activity, like places can ask you. And if you, and if you decide not to tell them, then you may not be able to participate in things. And that's where that is. (laughs) And that's perfectly fine. And I've heard of some campuses that have put some, some things into place where, um, they're saying you can choose not to vaccinate, but this means you're going to have to spend money, extra money. You're going to have to pay us so that you have to, A, have to wear a mask. B, you need to live in a single room and C, you need to be tested three, four times a week and you're Mm going to pay for it. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? I'm all for that. Because if you're not going to get, if you're not going to get the vaccine and you want to be able to be part of the community, you need to also take care of the risk that you are bringing by not being vaccinated. Um, and I'm, I'm all for that. Um, I think one of the last things that I just would say, if anyone's listening who has people in their life that are hesitant about getting the vaccine um, and I don't mean the folks who truly are not able to right now. Mm-hmm. There are still uh, nobody under 12 can get it yet. Right. We know that there may be other accessibility issues that are beyond someone's control. Maybe they truly can't get time off work. May, you know, there's all kinds of reasons, especially in certain groups and communities in our country where people are having a harder time getting it, but want it. Right. And I would encourage people, if you know someone like that, you know, how can you help them? Can you give them a ride? Can you, you know, find them an appointment on a day when they're not work? You know, like whatever, whatever things you can do to, to help with those practical boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. That's great. If you know people that do not want to get it either because they are hesitant or because they, uh, just straight up don't believe it works or think, you know, have a lot of misinformation about it. It's hard. Um, but trying to use some of the things that in public health, we have a theory that I lean on a lot. Um, that's called the trans theoretical model of change or you might hear it called stages of change. And it's from way back in the seventies. And it talks about different stages people can be in, um, where, all the way from what's called pre-contemplation where they don't intend to take action about whatever the thing is. So this can be about drinking. This can be about using drugs. It can be about getting the COVID vaccine. So if someone's in pre-contemplation, you know, they maybe don't, they don't want to, they don't see a time in the future where they will want the vaccine. Um, And it usually means that they are underestimating the benefits of changing the behavior mm-hmm. and really emphasizing the cons, like really thinking of all the negative things. And then the spectrum moves all the way f- from there to contemplation, which is a wonderful place to be able to start with people. So if mm-hmm. you know someone who's like, maybe I'm interested, but I don't know how, or I'm worried about these parts of it, or, you know, I heard it does this. I heard it like alters your DNA. It does not do that. Um, these are great people to have a nice conversation with where you are like curious and, yep. and caring Yep. and you go in and say, Hey, I hear you have questions. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want to know about it? Mm-hmm. Let me share some information with you. That's good. And, and like, uh, I can't think of the word right now for, the, uh, 
<laughs> like real good information that isn't lies. Real good um, information. Yes, Only you the know. Best information. My goodness, um, it's it's that midday blood sugar dip. Um, <laughs> but yes, trying to kind of talk to those people who are maybe starting to feel ready, but have questions or have been exposed to a lot of misinformation because misinformation is hard. Laura and I were talking in the green room, the best way to avoid like the misinformation takeover of someone's brain is for them not to be exposed to it in the first place. And we're that horse is out of the barn. Like we, it's a whole other problem, but the more that we can put aside the feelings that a lot of us have, and I'm with you, I have people, especially having a kid who's under 12, I'm just like, listen, y'all are fucking it up for my kid and I don't like it. You need to get your vaccines, but If I'm trying to convince someone, though, that's not what we're talking about. We're going to talk about, hey, so you're thinking about it or, or you're not thinking about it. Tell me why not. Like, what are the things that are kind of scary to you or, or that you've heard? Um, some people, it might even be that they've heard it's going to cost money. Right. And it's not. Right. So I, I think the, the, the ways in which we can maybe make some change with people who might be ready to change is to be curious and, and ask a lot of questions and give non-judgmental information yep. um, and be supportive and try if, if you come across in that conversation, practical boundaries, like, you know, I don't know where to go or I can't get there, like try to help. Yeah. Um, and you might convince people. I think that's an amazing uh, way to end that part of the conversation today about the COVID vaccine and about how it impacts our campuses. Um, For those of you who are new to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, I am Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am the uh, host of of the show. Uh, We are here today with Beth Grampetro. She is a health educator uh, in higher education. She is an expert in campus health. Um, She is uh, probably... one of my go-to people whenever I'm going, what is this going on? You know, um, and she is, she has a pulse on, uh, she's got the pulse of what's happening on college campuses in terms of health, in terms of mental health, in terms of students, in terms of what's happening out there, in terms of the the issues on campuses. And um, she also has a, just a real ease, as I think you just heard, as far as talking about some things that sometimes are very complicated and uh, may actually put people on edge because they don't understand it fully. And so that's one of my my favorite parts about Beth and and always a pleasure to have her. Um, if you have any questions, uh, this is Fireside Chat. It gives you an opportunity to come up on the stage and ask a question, uh, be part of the, the conversation, um, and uh, would love to have you. Um, we want to pivot uh, for the last few uh, bits of the show here. Um, something that's happening, and it's on the horizon, and uh uh, for those of you who are aware, uh, in uh, 2014, a Dear Colleague letter came down. This was during the, the uh, Biden-Obama uh, administration or the Obama-Biden administration uh, to colleges and universities through the Department of Education um, and uh, their Office of Civil Rights uh, saying to college campuses, look, we've given you time and time again to get your act together as it relates to campus sexual assault and uh, the issues around sexual assault on college campuses. And uh, you're not doing a good job. Uh, Where we were at the time were campuses literally moving students around because um, maybe they were a prominent football player or a student athlete. Um, They would not get uh, charged or even addressed uh, for issues around sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual harassment. Um, there would be uh, students who are victims of sexual assault would uh, be put through a extraordinarily difficult uh, process where they would be re-traumatized and uh, they would feel that they were being uh placed into a victim uh, situation over and over and over again. Um, and finally, the 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 administration came down and said, you need to clean up your act. You need to have uh, more clear processes. Um, But also, in addition to some of the processes that they uh, wanted you to adhere to, they also wanted us to be looking at our culture on campus and Mm -hmm. the rape culture on campuses um, that may exist out there. a report came out yesterday uh, out of uh, for Liberty University, not a huge shock, um, that uh, there uh, has been 12 women have filed a lawsuit on their campus uh, because of uh, issues around weaponizing their 
campus culture uh, that punishes women uh, into reporting sex assaults. Um, and why we find ourselves in this situation right now is that the Biden administration and the, excuse me, the Obama administration then went into the Trump administration and the Trump administration backed off on a bunch of these uh, rules and regulations. They made uh, what was uh, our policies into being more educative, more about we're not a court of law. Um, we are trying to change uh, the what is happening on campus, not only making sure that the policies reflect something that's humane, doesn't put the victims through uh, the ringer, uh, but we want to make sure that students are heard, uh, but also we want to change the culture. Um, and the Trump administration came in and said, no, we're going to make a, a, a court type of style space. Um, students uh, need to be able to confront one another. So the student who is the victim and the student who's the accused student have to be able to confront one another. Uh, lots of institutions were not doing that up until that point because of the trauma, trauma that it would cause. Um, and so now uh, we have seen a chill, chilling effect where students are not reporting sexual assaults on campus because they don't want to go through those types of uh, these, these courts on their campuses and go through these policies. And as a result, these issues around um, uh, rape culture have only returned to campuses um, and uh, been more emboldened. Um, and so I wanted to spend a little bit of time at the end here talking with Beth about her thoughts on what do you hope happens uh, with a new administration uh, the fall? We're hearing that some decisions are going to come down about how some changes are going to happen. Um, I know I have some opinions about what I hope happens because, frankly, what was going on during the Obama-Biden administration wasn't perfect either. Um, and I, we've learned from some of that. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you hope uh, in, if if Beth had a had a private meeting with the Department of Education, what would she tell them and why? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> that would be wild. Right? So I, I would totally pay to go to that. <laughs> I think that um, I definitely am hoping for. You know, I agree with what you said that, you know, during the Obama administration, it wasn't perfect either. But I think that the, um, I think whatever happens needs to err on the side of, you know, what is best for the complainant while also, you know, giving, like, we do need to worry about the fact that the person on the, um, on the receiving end of a complaint you know, in the title nine space is a person with rights. Like mm -hmm. that's a thing. But I think that what's happened specifically during the Trump administration was, you know, you had folks who were really into this notion that, Oh, well, people just make this up all the time mm -hmm. and people, you know, you can't say anything anymore. And you like, look at a person, you look at a woman, usually the wrong way, or you use the wrong pronouns at someone and they're going to file a title nine complaint. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. It's not that simple, nor is it happening that way all the time. Um, I think I want to see certainly at least a return to, you know, the kinds of um, interim protections on campus for people, interim measures to mm -hmm. make it possible for everyone involved to access their education without having to interact with one another, without having to be re-traumatized, but also um, more real investment in culture change and education yes. Yes. because it's super important that we have a good process for these things, that we have a way to respond on our campuses that is trauma informed mm -hmm. and that is going to, you know, provide some, a feeling of safety and a feeling of justice for people that do report these incidents yep. um, and give them equal access to their education, which is what this was about. This is why it came up under Title IX is like, if you are a victim of a sexual assault on campus and no one does anything for you and you have to continue going to class with your attacker and, mm -hmm. and you, you have to stop going to class because it's too traumatic, like right. you're not able to access your education properly. Right, right. But... Um, we can't have only that. And I think that it's really hard for schools to maintain like a really strong, and I'm not saying no one does. There's a lot of good, there's some good work being done at some schools. There's also grants through uh, 
the Violence Against Women Act. There's other sort of resources being given to some colleges and universities. But I think that it's unfortunate that much like what I was talking about before, we have students come in with all the things that they, you know, have already learned. And that's yeah. true when it comes to this stuff too. Remember, it's true when it I'm going to jump in here. Remember yeah, sure. that orientation when we had that mom. Oh God. Yeah. I'll never forget it. Okay. And, <laughs> I'll and, never forget it. And, and so we had a mom who said, and, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase here and you may remember exactly what she said, but she said, what are we going to do? Cause my son is a very attractive young man and women will want to have sex with him. And they may, because he is, he's a very attractive man and because he is going to be popular, they will accuse him of, of something he didn't do. Yeah. And, and this person's, um, this person's argument was like, why would you just believe any girl who comes and says that a boy, including my son did this? Right. Because what if they were drinking? What if they were doing this other thing? And so, you know, and I remember my response essentially was, you know, first of all, you come from the place of believing the person telling you this because that's how you best support the person. And because the the rate of people falsely reporting such things is very low. It's actually lower than for most false reports of other types of crimes. The other thing is that, you know, we have an expectation on that campus and on many others that people understand, you know, what we mean by consent and what we mean by, you know, not assaulting other people. And the onus is on people not to assault others, not to not get assaulted. Right. But I think that's kind of my wish. Like if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that we start that so much earlier because I think we don't start it early enough. And we have a lot of kids not being taught as early as preschool and kindergarten, mm -hmm. <laughs> frankly, mm -hmm. yep. that like you don't touch other people if they say no. And when someone says no, the game stops, even if it's not a sexual, I mean, shit at preschool, it better not be a sexual game. Um, even if it's a game of tag, if another little kid says to my kid, like, stop chasing me, I'm like, hey, stop chasing them. They right. said no, they right. need, you need to stop. Right. And that's something that, you know, it's, it feels very much like it's left up to the individual family or individual parents to like be solving this institutional problem or this societal problem mm -hmm. and trying very much to do this work way before your kid gets to college. Um, but we're all swimming in it and we just, we're not, you know, I wish that there was more, a, a better way and a better resourced way, especially for there to be um, true education and prevention and culture change on campuses. But then I also know that the research that we do have about sexual assault on college campuses, um, some of it, specifically David Lisak's research, tells us mm -hmm. that the men, and it is not only men who commit these crimes, but it is majority men who do, mm -hmm. it's a minority of men. It's a small, small percentage of all men, and they are doing it repeatedly mm -hmm. and intentionally. Right. So like... Yes to culture change. Yes to education, because we still live in a world, even if you never, even if you never, ever get physically or sexually assault, like no one ever rapes you or gropes you or does anything physical to you. You're still in it. You're still going to have someone it's inevitable as women or anyone who identifies as pretty much anything other than like cis male and hetero, someone's going to say something shitty to you or like, make fun of you or harass you because of your gender identity, your sex, like all these things happen all the time because that's kind of the way our, the way our culture is. Um, and it's, I mean, what other proof do we need than the fact that like, what was it October when the excess Hollywood tape came out in the 2016 yeah. campaign? Yeah. And yeah. we still, and we not, not me personally, but we yeah. still elected that dude. Yeah. Like yeah. just being like, Oh yeah, it's locker room talk. It's fine to talk about like, you know, these sorts of things. That's just boys will be boys. Right. And so that needs to change. But I think there's also the fact that like, there's a segment of folks who it's not a misunderstanding. They're not, they don't, you know, they don't not understand that what they're doing is wrong. They just have, they have been raised somehow. That's unfair. I shouldn't say been raised because people, right. parents are not doing this on purpose. They have grown up and somehow gotten the message along the way that certain people are not, as much of a human being as they are right. and that they are there to serve 
you know, needs and wants of, you know, There's that are mine. And I, parts yeah. of our community. There's I can just do what I want with this yep, person absolutely. because they're not as important as me. And that's, and, and your, your point I think is it needs to be heard again, is that campuses cannot just flip a switch and say the students, when they arrive on campus are going to going back to our original part of our show today. Uh, if I flip this switch, everyone's going to comply with their vaccine requirement with their alcohol rules and regulations, drugs, um, you know, going to getting up and going to call their classes. You know, like if you flip a switch, it's not going to just change who they are coming into the situation. And they are a big, mushy com combination of all the crap that has been thrown at them over their 18 years up until their enrollment in college. Mm -hmm. And if they have been told and it's been reinforced, whether it through be through youth, um, youth sports or youth activities, whatever the case may be, okay, or their families or their, their faith-based places or whatever it is, and that intersection of all of it, and they are being told over and over again that this is how it's normal in society to treat people, and they come onto campus and they continue to treat people that way, we can't change that overnight. Right. And, and there needs to be, um, it, so in this idea of what Title IX is going to look like, I would like to see some resources put towards K-12, mm -hmm. youth sports, youth activities, and say it is all of our responsibility to change this dynamic that gets young people into the idea of that they're either lesser than, better than, or can treat people differently. OK, in ways that that dehumanizes them and hurts them. And I would like to see more of that happen in the K-12 environment, not only sitting on the shoulders and the responsibility and the burden of higher education. The second thing I want to see is um, the Trump administration really push things towards clear and convincing when we were looking at these these standards of uh, burden of proof. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to get away from clear and convincing and get back to preponderance of the evidence, um, which is more appropriate for a campus environment for us to be in. Um, because that's how, again, these are not courts of law. Um, this is an environment. This is if somebody is dismissed from the institution, uh, this may be the only thing that comes to them. In my time working with students, I will say I will never forget sitting down with a student who was a victim of a sexual assault and they had the option. They could go to the court. They could stay on campus and, and work within the campus environment or they could do both. Mm -hmm. And um, they or they had they had to go through the college because we had to continue whether they wanted to be involved or not. OK, because that's part of the Title IX requirement is that the campus has to continue even if the student doesn't want to be involved. And when the student said to me, they had been the victim, the survivor of sexual assault as a child growing up in their home mm. with family members. And they said that in their family, they weren't believed. In the court, when they tried to bring it to court, the court didn't believe them. Mm -hmm. And at this point, only this was the first time anyone even told them that they had a voice, they had a space, and they were going to be at least assisted through this process and supported and given counseling, given resources, given safety, allowed to attend class and not have to look at this person every day. And they wanted to keep the process on campus. Yeah. They did not want to go to the court. And when all of the changes happened over the last four years, I kept thinking of that student and saying she never would have wanted to go through this again. No, definitely not. And it's, it's one of those things too, where like, there's always these people that are saying, Oh, just go through the courts, like go to the police. That's what you're supposed to do. It, that has absolutely no regard yeah. for how many people in our country want nothing to do with the police for very good reason. And then how many times does it go well in the courts? Right. I mean, look at what just happened with Bill Cosby. Right. So those victims who, you know, thought we, here we were thinking that one finally got done right as right as it can be within this system. 
And it turns out that behind the scenes, you know, the attorneys involved were making deals that they shouldn't have been making. And on a technicality, he's out. And every time that kind of thing happens, it's a chilling effect um, as far as people wanting to take and this stuff so, through the legal system. Absolutely. And and so to con- we all need to be keeping an, an eye on this. I think it's an important conversation. We will be doing more more discussions about this uh, when the decisions come down um, and uh, have some other, I would invite Beth back as well as uh, other, other Beths. She knows who the other Beths are. I've got lots of Beths (laughs) in my life and two of them are really good at this conversation Um, and uh, they will be able to come back and have this conversation. Um, We are coming up on the end of our time here. Uh, I want to thank Beth Grampetra one more time. For those in the audience, please give Beth a round of applause. Um, It would be wonderful for her to hear how much you loved her and all of that. So thank you. Um, (laughs) And I want to also uh, give everybody a quick reminder. uh, We will be returning back uh, here with uh, Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe uh, at the end, uh, going into... uh, the end of the middle of August, uh, we have uh, a wonderful uh, guest, Lynn uh, Zlakowski, who's going to be here. Beth knows Lynn. Um, she is going to be here to talk about first generation college students uh, and their transition to college. Uh, she just finished her uh, uh, doctoral research on that topic, and I think it's going to be a great conversation moving into the fall. Um, we are going to take a couple weeks off from uh, office hours, as well as my other uh, fireside show, The Kitchen Table. And uh, we are going to have a limited run show uh, for the next two weeks called COVID is a Drag. And it's all about uh, COVID, vac- the uh, COVID uh, pandemic and riding it out in uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts. Uh, we have uh, some guests, including some drag, uh, uh, some of the, the most visible drag queens in town, uh, the some artists, uh, some inn owners, restaurateurs, uh, people who wrote out the pandemic in an artist uh, colony at the end of uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And we're going to talk to them about what they did to uh, stay in business, stay mentally alive, uh, physically alive, and uh, what the community was like uh, during this last uh, last 15 months and what they've learned from all of it about themselves and about Provincetown. And uh, I invite you all to be part of that. I will be putting the schedule up in the fireside chat so you'll be able to see all the shows all at once. So you'll be able to schedule your time with us. Um, again, thank you to Beth Grampetro. Thank you all for being here in the audience. And thank you uh, if you're listening to this uh, later on. Uh, in the uh, recorded version. Uh, Please be sure to download the Fireside app in the App Store um, and follow me here on Fireside so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes of Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe as well as The Kitchen Table. Thank you, everybody. Beth, if they want to find you on the interwebs, uh, is there any place you would like people to find you? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, give me some information. Sure. So I am on LinkedIn. If people want to find me there, I'm on Twitter. I'm not super interesting on Twitter, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can find me there too if you want. Um, my handle is Beth G24, Beth G24 on Twitter. Um, I don't do a lot of talk about public health on there or well, it's, I guess she these days I really do really good hot takes on popular culture. And, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, Twitter I, is too many takes these days. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but she, and she's also quite a golden girls expert. So if you well, are that's true. a uh, golden girls aficionado, uh, please uh, be sure to, uh, uh, you know, engage on that, on that regard. So, so there you go. So thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful day. And thank you for being here with Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe.